good evening, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started, and uh, it's good to see you all tonight. And we'll be in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we'll start at verse 17. We began this passage last week, uh, which is a very important passage because it is teaching or laying out uh, the proper view, proper way to interpret uh, the, the Bible, the law, uh, Jesus in relationship to Moses and the law, which uh, consequently we'll actually be dealing with on Sunday as well. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, uh, the prophet Malachi is teaching uh, the, same, the same thing that Jesus is teaching here. So it's very important that we understand the relationship to the Old Testament and New Testament. And many heresies, many false teachings that have arisen in the church, they arise because of people don't understand the relationship between the Old and New Testament. And they typically seek to drive a wedge, a divide between the Old and New, between Christ and Moses, between Paul and Moses. They want to chop the Bible up in this way. And in doing so, they're able to then reject parts of the Bible that they don't like. And we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that at all. We should desire to obey all of the Word of God, to believe and to obey everything written in the law and in the prophets and then in the apostles as well. So this passage, uh, Jesus is dealing with the proper understanding of the law in relationship to his ministry and then in relationship to the apostles of, as well. So the New Testament in relationship to the Old, what is Jesus' perspective of these things? And then as we go through this, this next section, he's going to be addressing various false teachings uh, that are prominent during the day, and then he's going to correct those and give the proper interpretation, right? But in doing this, he's not adding something that was foreign to the law, right? This is what many people think, is that Jesus is giving new content that no one before this time knew. So no one in the Old Testament knew that you weren't supposed to get angry. They just thought you weren't supposed to murder. And no one in the Old Testament knew that you weren't supposed to lust. They just thought you weren't supposed to commit adultery, right? No one knew those things because Jesus is redefining or reinterpreting. He's adding a new layer of meaning onto the law that previously was unknown. But that's not what he's doing. Jesus is quoting passages from the law, but then he's showing that the common understanding of the day was not consistent with what the whole law taught. So the people, the false teachers, were cherry-picking parts of the law in order to justify themselves and support their own self-righteousness, but they were not understanding the whole law or the whole Old Testament as a whole altogether, right? So they're picking and choosing things to fit their own agenda and then forsaking and abandoning those things that would undermine their agenda. And this is what people do today as well, right? They, uh, the ones who want all grace, all they talk about is grace, but they never talk about obedience. Though there are many passages that talk about obedience, right? And then if you talk about obedience, they'll accuse you of being a legalist, right? A legalist or uh, a law keeper promoting workspace salvation. Now, we don't want to promote workspace salvation, right? That's something that we should avoid. But obedience is not contrary to grace or contrary to salvation if it's understood in the proper relationship to those things. So this is the approach that we need to have is a holistic uh, understanding of Scripture, the harmony of Scripture, the unity of Scripture, that all of it goes together and use Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? To supplement, to help us understand what this means and what that means, so that we have a true, proper understanding of the Word of God. 
Okay, so let's read our passage tonight, and then we'll um, have our Bible study. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask tonight, Lord, that you would be our teacher, Lord, that you would be our guide through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that has been given to us. Lord, help us to understand the Bible correctly, Lord, to understand the proper interpretation, Lord, not to add to it and not to take away from it, but Lord, to believe everything written in the law and the prophets and written in the apostles as well. Lord, that we might believe all of your word and Lord, seek to obey it and seek to incorporate it into our faith and into our practice. So Lord, teach us, Lord, how to do this, Lord, that we might properly divide the word of truth. And Lord, we pray that you would protect and guard us from false teachers, Lord, from those who seek to undermine the truth, Lord, who want to make the Bible contradict other parts of the Bible. So Lord, help us that we might understand the good and right way and that we might hold to every word of yours. And it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Okay, well, we begin last week with verse 17, where Jesus taught that he tells them, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's establishing there at the beginning that his ministry, his teaching is not contrary to the law or the prophets, but rather is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that what Jesus teaches and holds to is in perfect harmony with the law and with the prophets that Moses and Jesus taught the same doctrines. They taught the same way to live a godly life. Jesus and the prophets taught the same doctrines. So they're all teaching the same doctrines. And again, we'll deal with this on Sunday, that all of the doctrines of the Bible, everything necessary for life and godliness can be found in the first five books of the Bible, in the law of Moses. And then what comes after Moses both by way of prophets and by way of the holy apostles, are simply reiterations, further explanations of what was already taught and laid down by the prophet Moses in the first five books of the Bible. So there is a harmony and a consistency with all of Scripture. And one of the charges that the false teachers and Jesus's critics will bring against him during his ministry is that he's trying to overthrow Moses. He's trying to overthrow the law of Moses He's saying that he's going to destroy this temple and he's going to rebuild it in three days. He's trying to take us away from Moses. And this is the same criticism that the unbelieving Jews brought also against the Apostle Paul and the other apostles as well. That they're trying to overthrow Moses and the law and the prophets. They're teaching a new, strange, foreign religion that is contrary to the Old Testament. But this is not correct. In reality... The critics of Jesus, the critics of the apostles, they are the ones who have a strange foreign teaching. They are the ones who claim to be the disciples of Moses. But according to John chapter 5, Jesus says that on the day of judgment, Moses will rise up and condemn them because they 
claim to be his followers, but in reality they are not. Because if they followed Moses, then who would they believe in? They would believe in Christ. Because who did Moses preach about? Moses preached Christ. Moses proclaimed Christ to the people, and yet when the Christ he proclaimed came, his so-called followers put him to death and rejected him. So were they truly interpreting Moses correctly? And the answer is no. They had a false interpretation. And that's what Jesus is addressing. That's what the Apostle Paul addresses. If you read the book of Acts, this is why they're constantly appealing to the Old Testament to prove faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's what they're trying to convince them of. That Moses and all the prophets from Samuel onward, they all proclaimed these days. They proclaimed, according to Acts chapter 3, the days of Christ and the days of the apostles, and you need to believe in them. So, Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. The law and prophets have, as the centerpiece of their message, Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what the law and prophets primarily teach, how we can be reconciled through faith in Jesus Christ, and then all of the implications of what it means to be reconciled to God. And Jesus is the fulfillment. They predicted him, and then he fulfilled it when he came and died on the cross for our sins and was raised for our justification. So that's the approach we should have to the Old Testament, to the law and prophets. They are not abolished, but Christ fulfilled them in the sense that he is the... uh, the one that the prophets proclaim. They proclaim Christ, and then he came and fulfilled all of the things that they predicted. And we should assume that everything in the Old Testament is applicable for us today. And the only exception of why we would not keep a practice that they kept primarily from Moses onward would be because a New Testament apostle tells us that this is no longer applicable. that it was temporary in nature. It was always to be understood temporary. And when Christ came, then it is done away with. And we looked at examples of that last week from Mark chapter seven, right? The food laws, thus he proclaimed all foods clean. This also was the case in Acts chapter 10 and 11. Whenever Peter went to Cornelius, God told him, do not call unclean and common what God calls clean, right? Don't do that. He tells him to take and eat, and these were unclean animals, right? And then also in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the temple, the sacrificial system, the priests, all of those things were temporary until what they predicted should come. And the temple, the priest, the sacrificial system, all of that was depicting the work and ministry of Christ and holding the people there as a shadow and type until he would arrive, but then after he comes, then they're no longer necessary. And that's why, for example, we don't offer sacrifices when we come to church. We don't, uh, you don't have to pray to a priest like the Roman Catholic stage. We shouldn't do that. We don't do those types of things. You don't go to a priest as an intermediary in the way that they did in the Old Testament. And we don't go to the temple anymore. We meet uh, and do the things that we do. Okay, so That's the approach we should have. Everything is in play. It's all applicable unless we have the authority of an apostle of Christ or Christ himself telling us that this was intended to be temporary and now it's no longer in play. Now, why should we have this approach? Verse 18, 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away, as long as this earth is here, this heaven and this earth is here, there's not one single prophecy, not one single prediction, not one single commandment in the law or the prophets that is going to pass away. Not even a dot or an iota. These smallest of letters or breathing marks in the original language, even these things that seem so insignificant to us, yet those things will not pass away until everything is accomplished. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. So God's word is fixed. It is certain. It is like silver tried seven times and it will never pass away. Therefore, this is the approach that we should have to the Bible. We should never say, well, the Bible was written to ancient people who lived in bizarre cultures and we are modern, sophisticated people right? We are so modern today. We like to butcher babies. This is what we do in our own culture. We like for men to marry men and women to marry women. It's wonderful. We like for uh, six foot five men to swim against girls, right? And dominate them by uh, 40 seconds in the national championship. This is the modern sophisticated society that we supposedly live in, right? And there are people who would say the Bible is bizarre. It's backwards. It was written to primitive people and therefore it's not applicable to us today. But that's not the approach that we should have. Amen. Here, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, right? Not one dot or iota will pass away from the law until everything is accomplished. So it is fixed, it is true, it is certain for, for all time, from the time it was given until the very end of the world and for all eternity, right? God's word remains sure and certain and it will never pass away. And this is the way that we should approach it. So if the Bible proclaims something to be true, whether that be a doctrine that we need to believe or whether that be an act of righteousness, something that's defining for us good and evil, morality, immorality, whatever it is, then we need to believe it and we need to obey it. So if the Bible proclaims some doctrine like the doctrine of election, then we need to believe it. And not only do we need to believe it, but who else needs to believe it? Everybody. Everybody, everybody in the world needs to believe it. And if the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin, then do we need to obey that? Yes, and who else needs to obey it? Everybody, everybody in the entire world needs to obey that because it is from the word of God. God rules over the whole world. It is his world, his cosmos. He created it, and his word is fixed and certain. And this should be our approach to the Bible. And whoever seeks to contradict it, then we should contradict them, right? They're going to be destroyed by the word of God on the day of judgment, and we don't want to side with them, lest we be destroyed with them. Because the word of the Lord is like a fire that consumes, and it is like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. And we don't want to break in us to pieces. So what should we do? Believe. Believe and obey everything written in the law, the prophets, and the apostles. That's the approach we should have to the sacred writings. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? 
All flesh is grass, and all of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's word stands forever, whereas men, in the words of men, will fade away. Isn't that true? Isn't this the way it is in the world? These philosophies of men, they come and they go. They're in fad for a moment and then they pass out. But whose word doesn't? is not a fad. Then that's God. That's God's word, according to God's own estimation. Now, according to the estimation of men, they hate and disdain the word of God. But that can't be our attitude. Our attitude toward the word of God must be the attitude of Christ, that it stands forever and that it will never pass away and take our stand on the word of God, even if the whole world is against us. For the apostle says in Romans chapter three, let God be true and let every man be a liar. Right? Even if the whole world opposes God, it doesn't matter. God's still going to be true, and every single man will be found to be a liar who contradicts the holy word of God. Matthew 24, Matthew chapter 24, and verse 32. Matthew 24, 32. It says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation, or this age, will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So there, the word of Christ will not pass away. Heaven and earth will, but God's word will not. Even those things that are much more stable and permanent than we are, right? The heavens were here before we existed for thousands of years, and they will be here after we're dead. The earth existed before we arrived, and it will remain after us after our death. Yet even these things that are stable and secure from generation to generation, even they will pass away in comparison to the eternality of the word of God. So, we need to then believe the word of God, right? Believe all of it and seek to, as best we can, to understand what the Bible is teaching, right? Now, of course, we're all growing. We're all growing in our understanding, right? We have to progress. We have to grow. We have to study, right? So no one is perfect. No one has perfect knowledge, but our attitude toward the Bible should be to seek to understand what does the Bible teach and then what am I supposed to believe in relationship to that and what am I supposed to practice in relationship to that? That should be the desire of every Christian is to know what the word of God teaches. Okay, next. Verse 19. Therefore, he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be exalted as great in the kingdom of heaven or would be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What is the consequence? Here again, both punishment and reward. Isn't that what we just saw in Malachi chapter four? The Bible teaches by way of punishment. It warns us, it threatens us, and it teaches by way of reward, by motivation. This is, isn't this what we do in our own home with our children? We threaten them with punishments. If you do this, then you're gonna get a spanking. 
But if you do something well, then we tell them that you did a good job. We reward them. We praise them when they do good, right? This is what the government's supposed to do as well, according to Romans chapter 13. Punish evildoers and praise those who do good. So this is the way that we should be. Well, the reason we do that and the reason the government should do that is because the authority of the parents over the children and the authority of the government over the citizens is based upon the authority of God. And this is the way that God deals with people as well. He punishes and he rewards. So we were talking about this just Sunday night, me and Denny. God has a very big stick, okay, <laughs> to threaten us with. And he has very big carrots, okay, carrots in order to entice us to do the will of God. We need the stick and we need the carrot. And both of those are necessary for us to live a godly life. Well, what is the stick? What is the punishment that God reserves for those who relax his word? who don't take it seriously, and who teach others to do it as well. Well, notice what he says. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If you relax, right? If you say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that important, right? It's not, it's not like you're murdering someone. It's not like you're committing adultery. Right? It's just a minor thing, but it's taught in the word of God and you're relaxing one of the least of these commandments and teaching other people to do the same, which is people do this. Well, it's not essential. They'll say that some doctrines are essential and other doctrines are non-essential, right? So we have to believe the essential ones, but the non-essential ones, you just flip a coin, right? Do whatever you want. You can agree or disagree. We can hold to different views. Well, where does the Bible teach that concept? Where does the Bible teach the concept that some passages are essential to believe and other passages are optional to believe. It's good if you do, but if not, that's okay. Do you have an appendix in your Bible that gives a list of essential doctrines and non-essential doctrines? Commandments that we have to obey and commandments that are optional to obey? It's not the case at all. And according to Jesus, those things that people consider non-essential, things that are small, things that are least, he says that they're actually very important. Because what makes any commandment important is not what we consider about it, but it's the authority of the one who gave it. Right. And who gave every commandment in the Bible? It all came from God. So it's all important, right? There is, in a sense, there are least and greater commandments, but in another sense, they're all great because they come from God, who is the ultimate and only lawgiver and judge, and we will stand before him. So if we teach, if we believe and teach that there are least commandments, and it's not that big of a deal. Take it or leave it. If we have this approach to the Bible, then Jesus says, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, you ain't going to be there. Right? That's what he means. Not, you're going to be in the bad part, the slum part of heaven, instead of the, the good part, the rich part. But he means you won't be there. Because your attitude toward the Bible shows that you don't have faith. You don't believe. You don't submit to the authority of God. You have no humility, right? Though they would accuse us of being arrogant for saying we need to believe everything in the Bible. But really, they're the arrogant ones because on whose authority do they divide the Bible up in this way? Who told them that some doctrines were essential and others were non-essential? Who gave them the right? Yes, yeah, Satan told them, but not God. So they're doing it on their own authority, on their own authority, their own whims and fancies, and we cannot practice that. So if you relax them 
If you teach others to relax them, you will be called least. But then the carrot. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If we practice them, even the least of them, the things that we consider insignificant, and if we teach others to practice them, then we will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. By whom? By God. God. That's who we want to be called great by. Now, again, in this world, we're not going to be called great. People are going to call us all sorts of nasty words, all sorts of nasty things. Arrogant, harsh, stupid. stupid. Yeah, I've heard that one before. Uh, See, arrogant, harsh, uh, narrow-minded, know-it-all, you know everything. If everybody doesn't agree with you, then uh, you don't want anything to do with them. Uh, you, you are the, this is the things that people say, even on something like the doctrine of creation. Isn't that one that today people will say, it doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe in evolution. You can believe in Christian evolution or any uh, number of variations of Christian evolution. And that's okay, right? It's an in-house debate. We can believe it. You can be a young earth creationist or you can be an evolutionist and it doesn't matter what you believe. Well, that's not even one of the least of these commandments. We're talking about great. That that is a great commandment. It's the very beginning of the Bible. The first doctrine taught in the Bible, the existence of God and his creation of this present world. But people will say it doesn't matter what you believe on creation. That's okay. It's not essential. We can agree to disagree. But if we say no, it is essential. It is important. We do need to believe what the Bible teaches. And the Bible does teach young earth creationism, then they're going to say, you're a know-it-all, right? You're arrogant. You're divisive, right? You're trying to exclude all these people. But we're not trying to exclude people. We want to include them, but we want to include them with the truth, with the truth. So if we hold to this rigid view of the Bible like Jesus, right? Dogmatic like Jesus, (laughs) then people will hate our guts in this life. However, we're not living for this present world and we're not living for the praise of men. What we want to hear on the day of judgment is, well done, good and faithful servant. We want God to say, you are great in the kingdom of heaven. And if we want God to call us great, then we as people, we as a church, me as a pastor, a teacher of the Bible or anyone else, we need to teach and practice all the commandments of God in the proper context. Okay, a couple of passages. Matthew 23. Matthew 23, back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a net and swallowing a camel. Here, Jesus does talk about weightier matters of the law, weightier matters, or what we might say more significant matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. But he doesn't say... Just do justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and then you can neglect all these other things. No, he's condemning them because they're preoccupied and focused on the less significant things while at the same time rejecting 
and undermining the more significant things. And Jesus' solution is, these you ought to do the weightier matters, while at the same time not neglecting the less significant matters. Or do it all, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Do mercy, justice, right? Do faithfulness and tithe, mint, dill, and cumin. Do all of it. That's Jesus's approach when he's dealing with the Pharisees. Okay, another one. Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Verse 18, Revelation 22:18 says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So here, the approach, the attitude toward the word of God is don't add to it and don't take away from it. Right, both are forbidden. Don't add to it. How can we add to the word of God? What contribution can I make to the Bible that God hasn't already included there? Do you see how arrogant this is for a person to think that he can improve upon what God has already delivered? As if God isn't wise enough to know what a person needs for life and godliness? So it's extremely arrogant for someone to add to the word of God such as the scribes and Pharisees, who added their traditions and actually circumvented and undermined the word of God. Nor, he says, take away from it. Don't add to it and don't take away from it. Don't say that this is not important. We don't have to keep this. Right? Oh, well, this was only for Israel. It's not for us today. These are the types of arguments that people want to make. Right? We live in the new covenant, not the old covenant. So the Ten Commandments aren't applicable today. People want to do these types of things. Well, we can't do that. Because if we do, he's going to add plagues to us. Do we want God to plague us? No. Or, do, or take our name out of the book. He'll take away his share in the tree of life. We don't want that either. Because plagues, eternal plagues, and not having a share of the tree of life means hell forever. Right? That's what will happen to those who add to the Bible and those who take away from the word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandment of the Lord your God that I commanded you. So there, this concept of not adding or taking away from it was taught all the way back in Deuteronomy by the prophet Moses to the people. This is what Jesus is teaching. This is what the apostle John is teaching in the book of Revelation. Don't add to it. Don't take away because the word of God is perfect. It's perfect. It comes from God just all we need to focus on is understanding it and doing it, right? right? Knowing what it says and then practicing what it teaches. And isn't it a, a, a lifelong study to even master the content of the Bible? Isn't he even if we go through our whole life and we focus on reading and understanding the Bible 
that even at the end of our life, we still will not have mastered everything that is in the Bible. So how do we have time to add to it and take away from it, improve it when we can't even master it in our own life? So we just need to know, focus on knowing and understanding what the Bible teaches. Okay, one more. Proverbs chapter 30. Here, we'll, we'll hit the whole gauntlet here. Right dab in the middle. We got the law. We got Moses in the law. We got the wisdom literature in Proverbs chapter 30. We got Jesus in the Gospels. And we got the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. So cover to cover. Proverbs 30 verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Right. Right. So if you add to the word, even though a person may claim to have sincere, pure motives, actually they're a liar. They're liars and God's going to prove that they're liars on the day of judgment. That's what's going to happen because they're adding to it is contradicting what the Bible actually teaches. It's actually undermining the word of the Lord. Okay, now let's see a couple of examples of one example from the time of Christ of people taking away from the word of God. Mark chapter 7, we read this passage last week, but we'll read, actually we read the second part last week. We'll read the first part this week. This is what the scribes and Pharisees were doing with their traditions. They were adding to, and in adding to, they were taking away. So those two things always go hand in hand. When you add to the Bible, you're actually taking away from what the, the true interpretation and the true meaning of the Bible. So it's not that they're keeping the Bible and then keeping these other things as well. When they keep these other things, they at the same time take away from what the Bible actually teaches and they're not practicing it in its true proper interpretation. Mark chapter 7 verse 1 it says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who came from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So is this taught in the Old Testament, that every time you eat, you need to wash your hands. No. Not for the sake of hygiene, but for the sake of obedience to God. Where is that ever taught? There are washing rituals associated with going to the temple, with doing various things, but nowhere is it commanded that you need to wash your hands every single time you eat as a practice of godliness before the Lord. But this is what they're teaching the people today. The traditions of the elders... And when they see that Jesus and his disciples don't follow these traditions, the Pharisees are incredulous and they're asking him, why is it that your disciples, and who are they really getting at? Christ. They're really getting at Christ. Right? It's not, it's your disciples. Your disciples don't do this because you're not teaching them rightly. Right? You're not teaching them correctly. So this is what they say in verse 5. The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So that's what we were saying earlier. Right. They're adding to it by establishing this tradi tradition, but when they hold to their tradition, it causes them necessarily to leave the commandment of God, to actually undermine the commandment. Now, here's the example. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Right? This is what Moses said, the prophet, the prophet Moses, the one that you claim to love, you claim to follow, you claim to be his disciple. So Moses, your so-called prophet, said this, honor your father and mother. Now, is that a least commandment or a great commandment? That's a big one, right? It's a, it's a whopper because it's in the Ten Commandments. Right. Slap dab in the middle, right? Number, number five of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, teaching us our responsibility in the second table of the law of children to their parents, how to honor and love father and mother. Our first obligation in loving our neighbor as ourselves is to love our father and mother and to honor them in the proper way. And how important is this commandment? If a man, um, well, he says, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Someone who breaks this commandment, the penalty, the civil penalty for breaking this. Now, he doesn't mean this in the sense of a toddler, a two-year-old who says no to his parents and you take the child out and put him to death. That's not what Moses meant. He means this in an extravagant sense. If there is a son who is a drunkard and he punches his father in the face, then what should happen to that son? He should be put to death, right? That's, that's what it means. In, in, in that sense, in a severe breaking of this commandment, there was the capital punishment execution for those who reviled father or mother, right? In this type of severe way. So in, in the Ten Commandments and so severe that even the death penalty was given for those who violated this commandment in these extreme cases. So is that an, that's a very important commandment. That's the point that he's making here. And Moses taught this. Moses, the one that you put your hope in. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Here, they had created this system where children could get out of the responsibility to care for and provide for their aging parents in their old age, which is the final fulfillment of the commandment to honor your father and mother because there wasn't the social safety net Wait, so uh, it's actually not safe because it is going to ruin us. So it's the unsafety net that we have today, the so-called social safety net that wasn't there. So the way aging parents, when they got to the point where they could no longer work, they can no longer provide for their own means, then who provided for them? Their children did, right? This is the way that it should be, that the children should provide for the parents in their old age. So my children... You better get ready because I'm coming to stay with you when I get old. Okay, all right. So you make just build another room, an extra room on for me. This is what should happen. 
However, they had created a tradition to where the children would not be obligated to provide for their parents by declaring what would have gone to their parents as korban. But in this tradition, they're undermining the very commandment to honor their father and mother. And you won't permit them now to do anything for their father and mother. So by your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And then notice, and many such things you do. This is one example. But you do this in many other ways as well. Many such things that you do. Like, for example, their corrupt view of the Sabbath day where they were trying to forbid Jesus from healing people on the Sabbath day, as if healing a person on the Sabbath was breaking the commandment, the fourth commandment. But is healing a man on the Sabbath breaking the fourth commandment? Or is that in keeping with the fourth commandment? It's in keeping with the fourth commandment, right? It is the best thing that you can do. One of the greatest things that you can do for another man on the Sabbath day would be, it's the best day to heal someone, according to Jesus. And this is why he often healed on the Sabbath day, and to make a point, right, to bring these controversies up so that he could deal with them. So here, their traditions are causing the people to neglect the commandment to honor father and mother. They're taking away from the word of God, so they will be least in the kingdom of heaven. In our own day, people hate the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, the Lord's day, and they seek to jettison it from the Christian life, from the Christian life by promoting new covenant theology where they'll say the 10 commandments were a physical law for a physical people. They were just for the nation Israel, but now in the new covenant, it's a spiritual people and we need a spiritual law. And that spiritual law is the law of Christ, the law of Christ or the law of love or the law of liberty. And the 10 commandments are not applicable to Christians today living under the new covenant. Therefore, we don't have to keep the Sabbath commandment. And there are many, many popular preachers and teachers, denominations that believe and teach these things. Well, what are they doing? They have a tradition that they have created that is not consistent with the teaching of Christ, nor is it consistent with the historic reformed position on the Sabbath commandment, right? right? So it's not consistent with Christ and the apostles. That's all that matters but nor is it consistent with the history of interpretation, the history of good interpretation that has been held by other churches as well, even after that time of the apostles. But they create this new system of theology, and in doing so, they're undermining the very word of God. They're undermining the fourth commandment of God. So what will they be called? According to Christ, least in the kingdom of heaven. We can't do that. We don't want to do that. So we should hold to every word of God, right? So that we will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, uh, next verse is verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If our righteousness is not greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, then we won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is unequivocally saying the scribes and Pharisees aren't going to heaven. They are children of the devil. They're not going to be there. Even though in his own day, they were considered to be religious people. They were considered to be uh, the teachers. They were the teachers of the day. They were the pastors of the day. And we're not talking about 
pagans and idolaters. He's not talking about people in Rome or Greece or other parts of the world that worship idols. This is the part of the world that if you're going to find a true worshiper of God is going to be among these people at this time. They're the ones that have the word of God. And yet Jesus is saying of the teachers in Israel, the one place where you should find a true believer that among the teachers, if your righteousness doesn't exceed theirs, you're not going to go to heaven. Meaning they're not going to go to heaven either. So we should not be surprised in, in our own day, that in the Christian churches, that many times it could be said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the pastors of most Christian churches, you're not going to go to the kingdom of heaven. We shouldn't be surprised when the church, when those who have the word of God and claim to be followers of God, fall into such uh, a sorry, miserable state. Because this is how it was in the days of Christ. These are their teachers. And Jesus is saying they're all unbelievers, right? They're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So our righteousness must exceed theirs. Now we have to ask, in what way? In what way does he mean that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? And I think in two ways, right? In two ways, it must exceed theirs. First, we have to have the righteousness of Christ, right? right? They're unbelievers. They do not have a foreign righteousness. The righteousness of Christ has not been imputed to them. So they are standing before God on the basis of their own works of righteousness. And by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is Romans chapter three, verse 20. So they're standing in their own righteousness, which is unrighteousness, and they will not be approved by God. The only way we can enter into the kingdom of heaven is if we have the righteousness of Christ given to us, right? The righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, and it is for all who believe. So we have to have his righteousness. And when we have his righteousness, our righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees because he gives it to us as if it is our very own and we have that standing before God. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. This is what the Apostle Paul teaches here. That in his former life, when he was himself a scribe and a Pharisee, he thought he had righteousness, but now he considers it rubbish. He considers it a loss for the sake of knowing Christ so that he might have true righteousness, right? Not his own, but the one that comes through faith. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So here he's warning them, right? Be on guard. Notice there as well. What does he call these people? Dogs. And that's not a term of endearment, right? He's not talking about a cute, cuddly little dog. He's talking about a savage, uh, mangy, worthless, worm-infested dog, right? Look out for these dogs out there. False teachers. That's who he's talking about. They're evildoers. They mutilate the flesh. They're teaching circumcision as necessary for salvation. This is a Galatian heresy. He's saying, watch out for them. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus 
and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So there the apostle knows that he needs a righteousness that does not come from his own law keeping. That's what he was doing in his former life, trying to establish his own, but he doesn't want that anymore, right? Even though in terms of human effort, in terms of works-based righteousness, right, compared to other men, he excelled the rest of them, right? That he was much more zealous for keeping it than everyone else, and yet he says it was of no no uh, avail, that it's worthless. It did not do him any good at all. But now he's given up all those things because he wants Christ, because the righteousness of Christ comes not through works of the law, but rather it comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith, faith in Christ. And then you receive his righteousness. This is the same righteousness that Abraham received. He believed God, it says in Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He received the righteousness of Christ through faith, not through his works. And according to Romans chapter 4, he received that righteousness before his circumcision. So his circumcision could not be the basis the reason he received the righteousness from God, the righteousness from Christ, but rather it came through faith. The Pharisees are unbelievers. They, they don't believe. They don't have faith. So they don't have the righteousness of Christ. So in that sense then, our righteousness must exceed theirs because we have to believe in Christ and we have to receive his righteousness. However, I think there's another sense in which our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Because when the righteousness of Christ is given to a man, it is not an impotent righteousness. Amen. What does it do to the man? It changes him from where? Inside to the out. This is what it does to the man. When a man believes, when he receives the grace of God, the grace that saves a man, it changes the man so that he no longer walks in his old manner of life, but he walks in newness of life. And he's able, not perfectly, but he is able to walk in true righteousness before God, which is something the Pharisees could never do. Right. Because the only way we can live a righteous life is by the spirit of Christ within us. And they don't have the spirit. So they're doing it according to their flesh but we have to do it according to the Spirit. And when we have the Spirit 
and we have the righteousness of Christ, the result is that it will produce within us true righteousness in the way that we live. So the way that we live, the righteousness that is seen in our life must exceed the righteousness that was in the life of the Pharisees because theirs is a hypocritical righteousness. Now, again, there are many people who will stop at the first one and they'll say, it's just the righteousness of Christ. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter how we live, right? Because they want to downplay the importance of obedience, of righteous living. It's just about grace and we shouldn't talk about righteousness because if you do, then you're a legalist. This is what they'll say. Yes, they've even said that of your, of me, right? Of me. Yes, they'll say these types of things. But that's contrary to the Bible because the Bible is constantly talking about living a godly life, constantly talking about obedience, constantly talking about righteousness. Now, it's obvious that when it's doing that, of course it's not doing it in the sense of works-based salvation. There's no way that it's doing it in that way. But the apostles and the prophets don't feel the need to every time they teach about obedience or holiness or righteousness to remind the people, now it's all about the grace of God. It's all about the grace of God because they assume the people understand this because they've already taught it a hundred different times. So we don't need to say it a hundred different times as well. It should be obvious and evident in the teaching, right, that salvation is by grace through faith, but that the grace of God that saves us also changes us and causes us to walk in newness of life and that we need to live a righteous life. And if we're not doing it, then that's evidence that we don't have the grace of God, that we never were a believer, that we do not belong to Christ. So our righteousness must exceed theirs in both ways, both in terms of the righteousness of Christ and in terms of the righteousness it produces in the way that we live day in and day out. Okay, let's see this in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll pick up in verse 17. Now, when he's talking about this, is he just merely talking about having the righteousness of Christ? Or is he talking about the way that we live, our obedience, the way that we uh, walk with God day in and day out? He's talking about the fruit or the result of salvation. Ephesians 4, 17. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So there he's saying, if you're practicing these things, then that's not the way that you learn Christ. No way you can do these things. That's not what we taught you. Assuming you heard these things, were you listening is what he's saying? Did you really believe? How can you do these things if you learn Christ properly? Verse 22, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There, 
created in true righteousness and holiness. How can that be true of someone and it not change the way that they live? It's impossible, right? It is impossible that the grace of God would come upon a man and leave him in the same sinful state in which it found him with no change at all. Now, again, I'm not saying perfection. No one believes that. But the idea that someone can be a believer and live no differently than they did before their so-called conversion, what have they been converted to? What have they been converted out of? Right? Nothing, if that's the way they are. Then verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So here he's telling them, don't do these things anymore, but now do this instead. Right? If you were a thief, don't steal anymore, but get a job. Get a job, work with your own hand, do honest work so that you have something to share with anyone who is in need. You used to have corrupt talk in your mouth, but don't do that anymore. Now, speak those things that build other people up. You used to be angry, but don't do that. So he's teaching them, this is what you were like, in the old manner of life, now you're created, you're a new creature. You have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. And so you shouldn't live the way that you used to, but you ought to live in this way because of your new life in Christ. So the Pharisees had neither of these. They did not have the righteousness of Christ, nor did they live a truly godly life. Right. Now people thought they were godly, but it was all a scam, okay? They were hypocrites, It was all a show to be seen by others. But even people like this, if you look close enough and long enough, eventually you're going to start seeing these things. It's all going to come out, right? It's going to come out in one way or another. And there were evidences and signs, even during the time of Christ, that people could see their hypocrisy and know that these guys were fraudsters. They weren't true. They were hypocrites. They were not truly righteous people. Matthew chapter 20. Twenty-three. So I guess either a seven, a three, or a two. And I'm going with twenty-three. So Matthew twenty-three and verse twenty-five. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean as well. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Right. Right. So they had a form of external righteousness, 
but it wasn't proceeding from a true heart. It wasn't proceeding from a heart of righteousness, but it was a filthy heart. They were filthy on the inside and had the appearance of being clean on the outside. This is what they were. But eventually, what's on the inside is going to come to the outside. The righteousness that we have to have has to start inside from the heart and then manifest itself outwardly in our words, in our deeds, in the way that we live, right? Inside and outside. And then one last passage, Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. It says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. So there, make the tree good and its fruit good. Right? Change the nature of the tree. And then the fruit of the tree will be in accordance with its nature. But if the nature of the tree is evil, then the fruit of that tree will also be evil. So making the tree good is our conversion. He takes us from being evil trees, converts us into good trees, and then what is the result? Good fruit. That's the righteous living, the righteous life that we live. But if we've not been converted, then we're going to continue producing evil fruit. Now, even after our conversion we still have our dead branches. And what does Jesus do to those dead branches? He prunes them so that we might produce more good fruit. This is our sanctification. So he's telling them, how can you speak good when you're evil? You've got an evil heart. How can good come out of your evil heart? It's impossible. It's impossible. And that's why he says that by their words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Right? Not that our words are the basis of our justification before God, but they are the evidence, the evidence of our justification and the evidence of our condemnation, right? Is our words for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is what will be brought forward. The fruit is what's brought forward on the day of judgment to prove whether the tree is a good tree or whether it is a bad tree. But what makes the tree the good tree isn't the fruit, it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that converts it And then because of that grace, it produces fruit. But the fruit is brought forward on the day of judgment as the evidence. And the fruit is to be used by us in this life to judge ourselves, right? To judge ourselves, to test ourselves, to see whether we are in the faith and to also judge one another within the household of faith. Because if we begin to see evil fruit coming from us, coming from one of us, then that's not good. That's evidence of an evil heart and we have to investigate and find out what's going on, right? Why is this the case? Okay, well, we'll go ahead and stop there for tonight. I know this is taking a little bit longer to get through this, but these are such important issues and topics that we really need to understand them. And if we understand these things, uh, it's going to help us understand the Bible as a whole. So we have to understand these things. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll also be dealing with this in large part on Sunday. That's Sunday as well. So it doesn't mean you can skip. You're going to get reiterated on Sunday. So 
you're, you guys are going to be ahead of the curve. You're going to be outpacing everyone else because they're going to be starting afresh, but you're going to be halfway, you're going to be halfway home. So, okay, so we'll stop there. And then next week we'll pick up with these uh, series of false teachings that Jesus brings forward. Uh, and then he's going to expose those false teachings and teach what the, what the true interpretation of the Bible is in relationship to anger, to lust, to oath-keeping, to these types of things. Okay, but we do have a little bit of time uh, for um, any questions or comments. And so anyone have anything they'd like to bring up, something they want to uh, reiterate or anything?